So let's get going uh, this morning. We're going to talk about um, biblical soul care and pharmaceuticals. This is a, an interesting topic. It will be one that we tread very, very lightly on. But I do think there are some important things that we can discuss. I want to make a couple of, a couple of statements right at the outset, okay? Is, uh, if you wa- so I want to say a couple of things, two things. First thing is if you are on pharmaceutical medication right now, psychopharmaceutical medication, I should say, don't stop taking it, okay? No matter what I say today, I'm not a physician, don't stop taking your medication. Always talk to your doctor about things like that. Um, There are one in five Americans in the year of 2020 who uh, the CDC says um, had a mental disorder. There is one in 25 who will deal with these types of issues in their lifetime, according to the CDC. What that means is that about 52.9, almost 53 million people in the year 2020 have struggled in some way with what is diagnosed in the secular world as a mental disorder or what they call a mental illness. And so these things are very very real in relation to the experiences that, that people have. And so in biblical counseling, sometimes there's this misnomer that, that you guys dismiss um, those types of experiences, or you guys dismiss uh, the idea of that, that medicine is bad, right? And that's not the case at all. So that's the first thing I want to say is just make very clear. And, and if you walk away this morning and you've been on psychotropic medication or psychopharmaceutical drugs, and I want to distinguish psychopharmaceutical drugs, okay? Uh, and you feel condemned, I didn't do a very good job, or you took it personally. So one of the two things happened, and so I'll apologize ahead of time. That's not my intention at all. The second thing I want to say is, is sometimes when we talk about subjects like this, it's very sensitive toward health care, as, you know, as if biblical counselors are against health care at all. There's a distinction in my mind overall between what is called quote unquote mental health and what is called health care. You think about health care, nobody goes, it's just like somebody who goes into counseling. Nobody goes into counseling because you hate people, okay? So when I talk about um, secular theorists, my, my goal is not to diminish their desire or their goal or, or what they went into that profession for. They, they love people. You go into health care because you want to help people. Um, there are very few evil actors in that world, okay? You, you go into healthcare uh, because you, you love people and you want to discover things and you want to see people get better and that sort of stuff. <clears throat> so I just want to make, make sure that we're, we're super, super clear on that, that I would argue that, that people in the helping profession are among the best people um, that there are, okay? So I just want to make some of that clear. The Bible does talk about physicians, in a, in a helpful way. So, so biblical counselors, as much as we may critique areas of mental health, and I think there's a lot to critique, and, and in the day and time that we're living in, there's actually more and more and more and more to critique. I'm actually in the middle of reading a book that just came out by a famous uh, professor at the University of Toronto, and it's called The Rise and Fall of Psychopharmacology. His name is Ed Shorter. And he's a, he's a dyed-in-the-wool biological psychiatrist. He, believe, he believed in the reductionism of 
biology explaining everything that we do and are, all the emotions that we have. I mean, he believed in that stuff 100%. And here he is writing the book that talks about the history of psychopharmacology and that we've now entered a stage at which it is falling. It's an interesting, interesting thought. But none of that diminishes when we talk about legitimate caring for people. When you think about healthcare, and next week we will dive into the physical body and physical illness, and, and uh, so this will sort of be a carryover talking about these paradigms. When we talk about the physical body, it's important that we understand the Bible doesn't denounce that work. The body is a real thing. What we have to distinguish is what is of the body and what is not. Should we reduce emotional problems, as we call them, to just simple biological, mechanical problems? And I think that's the unfortunate thing that's, that's happened uh, in our day, in the last 70, 80, 90 years. And I think we have to be cautious about that. And so the place that I want to start is in Matthew 9. Matthew 9. Matthew 9, 10 through 12 says this, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I know the primary point of this passage or the primary point of this text is, is not talking about medical care, but Jesus makes an interesting analogy with this statement. He doesn't denounce medical care. He thinks it's good. This is what he says. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. What's implied? That those who are sick do. The problem, I think, in the modern world in which we live is distinguishing between that which is a physical illness and that which is not so when we talk about psychopharmaceuticals, there's a long history, and, and this, today is going to be really, really difficult, because in 45 minutes, and I only gave myself 43 today, because I was two minutes late, is, is going to be tough to take this much information, which I, I talk about in one class at Midwestern, where I do a history of psychiatry and a history of psychology. And I, I talk about the distinctions. Most people don't know this, that psychology and psychiatry are really not on the same team in recent days. They sort of have fought against one another for the past two centuries. Psychologists believing in talk therapy and not a medical discipline, um, they, they believe in philosophies of life. And when we talk about counseling theory, that's what we're talking about, it are the philosophies of, of counseling psychology. And psychologists believe certain things about people and why people have certain things. And, and, and then they use talk therapy to help people work through those tumultuous times in their life. Psychiatry is a medical discipline in which it's, it's trying to explain those same problems. You see, they're vying for the same people. And when you treat um, with a psychiatrist, when you treat medicine, you're, you're essentially saying that you believe reductionistically that this is a, a, is a medical problem or a biological problem. And so what we have to do is we have to begin to separate the distinction, okay, and, and understand what the distinction is. And we have to do this with humility because there's so much that if we're admitting and honest, there's so much that we don't know about the body. The leading psychiatrist in the last 20 years has said this about the human brain. I think this is interesting. He says, we know more about the universe than we know about the human brain. 
Now, that's, that's fascinating to me when it seems like you can turn on a commercial and they've got it nailed down, what's wrong with you and why you experience certain things and you take this pill and it will magically fix you. And that's what I'm trying to dispel today. Why? Why would I be after this, okay? The reason I would be after this is because what I've seen in the church is a fear to address real experiences that we have with the Bible, we, we begin to think the Bible is insufficient to deal with the emotional struggles that we have in life and the experiences that we have in life. And we stay away from what the Bible may say that can help us, that the Bible addresses about our human experiences, and we run very quickly to some other explanation. Okay, so I, I don't do this to denounce any type of medical disposition or anything like that. I do this because of the fear that I see in pastors and the fear that I see among our people when we experience certain things that are really bad, that are really difficult, that are emotional. Uh, we, we can't explain the emotional ups and downs of what life is like, that we immediately, because of the, the, the cultural narrative, we run to some explanation that's been given to us by, by psychiatry. Now, before you think biblical counselors hate science, I'm going to go back and help you to understand and see, or medicine, we don't. From the very beginning, Jay Adams, this is some of the things he said. I'm going to run through this quickly because we have a lot I want to cover. He said this, I do not wish to disregard science, but rather welcome it as a useful adjunct for the purposes of illustrating, filling in generalizations with specifics, and challenging wrong interpretations of Scripture thereby forcing the student to restudy the Scripture. Do you see what he's saying? What he's saying is that, that science, legitimate science, and I'm going to distinguish today between what's called science and scientism. Those are two radically different things, okay? What he says is science can actually help us. And when it challenges, legitimate science challenges something that we've believed interpretively in the Scripture, it shouldn't force us to go embrace necessarily all these wonderful things out there. What should it do? It should force our hearts back to the Scripture to understand Scripture better. Because this is, these are the words of God that the Bible said leads to life. And that's what we're really after. And Jay said this as well. It's perfectly clear that illnesses can and do affect behavior. In such instances, medical help should be sought and administered prayerfully. So I think it's important that we understand what, I'm, what I talk about today is, is a distinct segment. What I'm trying to do is, is what I would argue in Colossians 2.8, is trying to identify within that segment vain philosophies and empty deceptions. And here's one of the, the, the truest statements that I'm going to make today is the church in history is often the last place to come on board with what's actually happening in the secular world. I could point you to book after book after book since 2010 that has built this case, and all of them are non-believers, actually God-haters in the secular world relative to the things I'm going to talk about in just a second. David Pallison also said this, we affirm that God's providential common grace brings many goods to people, both as individual kindnesses and as social blessings. What he's talking about is medical treatment, economic help, political justice, protection for the weak, educational opportunity. Wise counseling will participate in and encourage mercy ministries as part of the call to love. So the reason I start that way is because there are often misnomers about biblical counselors to say that 
we don't like physicians or we don't like medicine. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's actually in our standards of doctrine at ACBC that, that we make very clear that you, all, you never give medical advice and you always need to refer to a physician to get, get a physical workup. Because part of the, the deal is we are, biblically, we are mind and body. We are body and soul together. We are a dichotomy put together in, in wholeness, right? And we will always be that. I'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But we will always be that, even in, in the resurrection. That's what it means to be human. And, and what's happened, I think, is we so easily divert or distinguish between things that happen in the body as if it's completely disconnected from the soul, or things that happen in the inner man as if it's completely disconnected from the body, and neither one of those extremes are helpful or right. And so we have to be cautious and careful. I'll give you an example. One of the first things that I do if somebody's dealing with deep depression or deep anxiety or something like that is I make very clear to them that one of the first things they need to do is to go find a trusted physician who can give them a workup and rule out anything that could be contributing medically. And I think that's a really important statement. And I would say that to all of you. If you're experiencing something like that, that's one of the first things that you need to do. Counselors, by and large, not just biblical counselors, but counselors anywhere, it's against every code of ethics, even in the secular world, to give any type of medical advice. So that's not something that biblical counselors ought to be doing really at all. And I would argue that, that if we talk about medicine in any of my counseling sessions, it's, it has nothing to do with me bringing it up. It's often the counselee asking questions, and I'm often deferring to physicians and to go get an opinion from their prescribing physician or to go talk to, uh, get a second opinion from a different physician. And so I just want to make those things clear at the outset. Now, if we were to talk about psychopharmaceuticals, and psychopharmaceuticals, I want to give a, a brief definition uh, it's drugs that are used in treatment of emotional and psychological disorders, those that are diagnosed uh, typically through um, the diagnostic system of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is considered um, as the Bible of psychology and the Bible of psychiatry. Now, again, we have to, we have to tread lightly here, and I'm going to give you a quote from Heath Lambert. Heath um, was my predecessor at ACBC and. You'll find on our website, I actually put uh, a link down at the bottom of the notes. You'll find at our website a statement that the board has made on mental illness and, and biblical counseling that I think you'll find helpful, or, or mental illness and medicine that, uh, that I think you'll find helpful. And we've done lots and lots of things trying to delineate uh, the distinctions here. This is what he says, because many counseling problems occur in the intersection of physical and spiritual issues, counselors must exhort humility and avoid unduly dogmatic assumptions about the source of some problems in living. And I cannot stress that enough, that when we approach this, this issue, we have to approach it with humility. Humility in acknowledging the things that we know, but the things that we don't know as well. And what I would say is there's, there's probably, on both sides, there's a lot that we don't know. And what I'm trying to do is trying to help us to understand a little bit of the things that we know versus a little bit of the things that we, we don't know. For, for far too long, in my opinion, as I look at the shape of psychiatry and really where the discipline is right now, what I've seen is a, is a deferential position. 
where people in our culture, the church included, um, some of us in here included, uh, and there's, I, I don't mean to shame at all when I say these things, but we have to be cautious and careful because the narrative for too long has been, if you have an emotional issue, there's a chemical explanation in your brain. That's one of the primary pillars of modern psychiatry. Now, when I speak about that issue, okay, well, here's what I want to make clear, that there are things we don't know about the, the, the drugs themselves, okay, that you need to talk to your physicians about that I think is important. So when you talk about getting on that type of medication, this is an issue that I would argue is of biblical wisdom, okay? And we could put it under the category of something like Romans 13, 14, okay? where there are preferences and wisdom that applies in different situations. And that's why you can't be dogmatic about these particular things. But here's what I will say. If we become convinced on some level, as we have as a culture, as an American culture, if we become convinced on some level that our emotional problems are equated to biological, mechanical problems in the brain, I think we lose the battle. Because what, what starts to happen is now we look in a direction for authority that the Bible speaks very clearly about relative to, to the emotional problems that we have. And so when you speak about these types of issues, some people will say, well, you're just dismissing that we don't have those types of deep problems. No, no, I'm not dismissing that. I'm actually saying that it, there are these types of depressive states, these types of extreme anxiety are very, very real. And it makes sense according to the biblical narrative. Because the Bible makes very clear that in this world, you will have trouble. And the trouble is not minimal, small. It's extreme. In, in every case, when we talk about physical illness, look at the things that are going on in Ukraine. I've thought more about death in the last four days than I have in a long time. And I'm thinking about those people that for whatever reason, in the sovereign hand of God, that their life is probably short. This world is full of trouble, and there are narratives philosophically out there, even sophisticated ones, that are trying to minimize our view as if that's not a reality. And sometimes in our culture, we are insulated, I would argue even isolated, from the realities of how difficult life is, not just physically, but emotionally as well. And often what's happened is as we believe those narratives, we, we tend to dismiss the vitality of the Bible. And so what I'm after is just to help us to see the beauty of the Scripture in the depth at which it meets us where we are in our experiences, the depth of those experiences and the beauty and hope that we can have. Colossians 2.23 um, is giving this long discourse about the wisdom that's found in Christ, the beauty of the wisdom that's found in Christ. And he goes on to encourage us that we are to walk in the same way in which uh, we, we first believed, right? It's, we, in the same way in which we were justified, we walk in him. And then he goes on to describe and warn us against empty philosophies and vain deceptions. And then he goes through this process of explaining all these different issues that we, that we struggle with relative to human asceticism and, and uh, man-made religion and that sort of thing. And he concludes that whole section in 223 by warning us against just saying these things, I'm warning you against these things because these things look like religion, they look like wisdom, but they are of no value in, the indulgence, uh, in overcoming the indulgences of the flesh. And I think there are a myriad of things that we need to be cautious about here where we 
are quick to run to a narrative or an explanation of our human problems, no matter how deep they are. And we're running to things that have temporary effect. If we're thinking in pragmatic terms, they quote-unquote work to some degree on, a, on about 35 to 40% of people. But they are of no value in covering the issues that really need to be covered in the depth of the human heart. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying here? How that can become a facade of we begin to hope in this being fixed in us. It's not really a problem with us. It's a problem that we couldn't help. And so we don't really make any effort scripturally to deal with the inner issues in our heart. Do you see what I'm describing there? And so we, we start to have this facade that our hope is in something else and not in Christ himself. And that ever so subtle distinction of focus or what I call posture is now we're posturing towards something else that really becomes our hope for thriving and flourishing in life. When in reality, you and I were, were, were made to be fully dependent, postured toward Christ in total for our hope, dependent. And that's a, that's a healthy place for us to be, not an unhealthy place for us to be. Now, I'm not arguing that you shouldn't take medicine. I took medicine this week. I hurt my back last week, and I took a muscle relaxer, and it was wonderful, okay? It, it like, allowed me to walk. I'm 42 years old, and I, was, I had to walk with a walker last Sunday. Um, that's terrible to admit. And so part of that's my sinful stupidity and getting on a ski mountain and thinking I could do it anyway, and I fully admit that, okay? But the reality is, medicine in and of itself is not bad. I do see medicine as a common grace from the Lord, something that he has given us that is good. But we need to distinguish between that which is science and that which is scientism, okay? That which is science and that which is scientism. There's a big difference between an antibiotic and an antidepressant. There's a huge difference in the scientific vigor that's gone into demonstrating an antibiotic and what it does and the pathology that, that, um, that uh, demonstrates need for such a medicine and an antidepressant medication or an anti-anxiety medication. Those two things are in different worlds. And for a long time, this narrative has been propped up as the chemical imbalance theory, right? So if you have these emotional problems, and in the DSM, the way it's described is there are nine criteria for, for major depressive disorder. And if you have five of the nine of those over a two-week period, then you can be considered depressed or clinically depressed. And so then you, it, they, they, the description is then you need this medicine in order to, to do better. Now, nobody's saying that you're not feeling depressed. You are feeling depressed. Nobody's denying the descriptions that are given. They're actually really good descriptions that you can't sleep, your appetite's not good, and um, maybe you cry a lot, that sort of thing, okay, or down most of the day, that sort of stuff. And those things are true. But when you look at that data, there are very different explanations, right? So if I, if I take a pill, for example, then what I'm, what I'm saying essentially is that um, I know what's wrong with me, and I'm going to fix it this way, biologically, okay? Versus being able to pause for a few minutes and understand what are some of the turmoils in life that I'm responding to that might be radically different. And so for a long time, the, the notion of the chemical imbalance theory was, was built. And this is the part that's a little bit dicey, okay? So I want you to take a deep breath, and I'm just going to talk through this. And then we're going to get to some biblical wisdom that I think will be helpful. 
the whole psychiatric narrative was built upon this idea of the chemical imbalance theory. The chemical imbalance theory was one that was proposed. It was, it was thought about and, and talked about in the 1950s. It really came to fruition uh, in theory form in 1965. There were a couple of guys who wrote different papers. The one who became most famous was a man named Joseph Schildkraut. And Joseph Schildkraut was at Harvard, uh, and he was doing uh, medical, um, medical research. And, and he proposed this paper to the APA, the American Psychiatric Association. And as in this paper, he, he argued for what was called the monoamine hypothesis. And what that means is that's the, the, what we now know of as the chemical imbalance theory is that there's you know, low neurotransmitters that, that are the reason why you are depressed, that sort of idea. Um, and so because of that, now psychiatry begins to build this massive narrative. And it didn't really take off um, essentially until the 1980s when the DSM was basically rewritten over the, the decade of the 1970s and into the 1980s to redefine uh, every mental disorder from a Freudian type language of psychosis and neurosis, right? Really not having biological explanation really much at all because Freud believed that these things were, were a part of the, the id, ego, superego dynamic and that's why we pre presented those types of symptoms of psychosis and neurosis. And then in 1980, you see this transition, this transition to an explanatory um, uh, a way of explaining these problems in biological terminology. And basically, psychiatry was, was um, front-loaded on the, on the uh, foundation of this basic theory. And there were high hopes. And it was actually, listen, it's not actually a, a terrible theory. It actually makes sense, right? You take some sort of medicine, you feel a little bit better. So it has to be that if it's fixing this type of neurotransmitter flowing through your body, then, then it has to be something like that. Uh, but on the face of it, the, the National Institute of Mental Health in 1984 actually released a statement saying basically that there's no serotonergic explanation for depression. Now, that's in 1984. You know how old I was in 1984? Five. I'm 42 now. How in the world have we continued that when the head of the NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health, made that statement very clearly in 1984? Isn't that interesting? I'm going to give you some more research that's constantly coming out, and these are by high-level psychiatrists, secularists who are very, very well-known in that world. Now, why do I bring all this up? Because I am, uh, as, a, as one who shepherds people consistently, I see pastors who are fearful to run to the Bible first, to posture toward the Bible, to understand the problems of people and just simply send them away. To often, I've heard story after story after story of people who will take medication based on this narrative, thinking that it's truly fixing some aspect of the chemicals in their brain. And then from that, they become more hopeless because they find themselves more and more in despair or still feeling the same or they feel out of touch as if they're, they're disconnected from reality. Yes, their highs are not as high and their lows are not as low, but they don't feel anymore. When we can see the beauty of Scripture being sufficient, and again, that's not dismissing uh, the medical pursuit. What I'm saying here is this is different in scientism. What is scientism? Scientism is just a, a philosophy promoted with scientific language. So essentially, in, in my view, you've got, and, and I teach this relative to the history of psychiatry, 
When you look at the history of psychiatry, what you see is a philosophical pursuit that wanted to be like medical doctors. You see a philosophical pursuit that tried to ascend to the advancements that were legitimately happening in medical science, right? Take, for example, antibiotics. That's a massive thing, right? If you had a fever several hundred years ago, on Monday, you could be in the grave by Wednesday. It's incredible, the advancements. And who do we have to thank? Thank the Lord for his common grace to give us something like that. But that is radically different than the narrative that we see that happens in the world of psychiatry. And so what was happening is, uh, as Darwinian influence came in, that philosophy began to permeate everywhere. And now you have to explain man according to a Darwinian biology. And so the application of Darwinian biology on anthropology became a reality. And so how do we explain the things that happen to man? Well, we can't explain that there's some sort of inner man or some immaterial part that we can't explain, but yet he's still expressing some sort of emotions. Well, then we have to reduce that. It's biological reductionism. We have to reduce that then to some sort of biological explanation for the problems that we have. And in that philosophy, it's brilliant. But I would submit to you that we are not biological beings only. And there's a danger in both sides, being hyper-spiritual or hyper-biological. And we have to be cautious and very, very careful and wise in the ways in which we approach this. I'll continue with some, some thoughts. You have those in front of you. There's no clear and convincing evidence that a monoamine deficiency accounts for depression. That is, that's a misprint, that is, there is no real monoamine deficit from Stephen Stahl in Essential Psychopharmacology in 2000. If you understand the narrative and the history, that's a bold statement in the year 2000 because there was not near as much research. The people who were saying things like what Stephen Stahl just said um, were looked at as being crazy people. When you look in 2005, Kenneth Kindler, who's a very well-respected psychiatrist, we have hunted for big, simple neurochemical explanations for psychiatric disorders and have not found them. Again, these are not people who are religious fanatic, crazy people like me, right? And maybe like you. These are people who are well-respected in the world of psychiatry secularly. Ronald Pye is one of the most famous uh, psychiatrists in America. He's Professor Emeritus at Tufts University in Boston. He was the editor for the Psychiatric Times for, for years and years and years and years. He still writes for them uh, on occasion. And this is what he said. In truth, the chemical notion was always a kind of urban legend, never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. And some of you are sitting out there saying like, well, how come I've never heard of this? If nobody ever believed this to be a reality, why are we just hearing about this, right? And Ronald Paz, again, is one of the most respected uh, psychiatrists in the world. He was one of the biggest promoters of what's called uh, uh, biopsychosocial view of human beings. And that's even being questioned today. David Healy, a professor uh, of psychiatry in the UK, who was very influential in the 1980s as a consultant here in the US uh, with, with um, Prozac. This is what he says. The idea, I don't have this one, I don't think, uh, in front of you, but the idea that there is an imbalance of serotonin in depression is completely mythical. It arose in the marketing department of SmithKline Beecham, the maker of Paxil. The key thing about the myth is that it provides an image that functions like the imagery of bacterial col uh, colonies in a Petri dish, shrinking back from an antibiotic. 
are images of cholesterol levels declining following treatments with statins. Now, that's a, that's a profound statement for someone to make. And, and here's the distinction. Do you see the difference now between scientism and science? He's not denying science altogether, and I would position myself exactly the way he describes that. He's denying what's been propped up by scientism, philosophies that we hoped were true but have not proven themselves out as true. Alan Francis, who is the writer of the DSM-4, so the most recent iteration is the DSM-5, so the, the one before that. This is what he says, no biomarkers exist for any of the primary psychiatric disorders despite 50 years of intense research. That's an amazing statement from a man whose whole life, he's probably the most influential psychiatrist for 20 years in America. It's an interesting statement for him to make. And then Edward Shorter, I'll give you two quotes from him very quickly. A capital reason for the decline of psychopharmacology was the growing view that many of the diagnoses in the official Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders didn't really exist. That they were fictions, not diagnostic science. Now, Edward Shorter is the, the professor of psychiatry and the history of medicine at University of Toronto. He wrote this recent book. This comes from his 2021 edition, The Rise and Fall of Psychopharmacology. And again, this is a man who has staked most of his life in the rise of psychopharmacology. And now he's talking about its demise. This is another just very quick. This is what he says in his book. It's on page 123 if you want to look at it. No pseudoscientific proposition has proved more profitable than the notion that patients are suffering from, quote, chemical imbalances. Now, I know some of this is very, very difficult to talk about, so what are we to make of it? How are we to think about this in biblical wisdom? How are we to deal with this? Okay, number one, your job, okay, I say this for you individually, not you as a counselor. Okay, your, your job, if you're working with someone, is never unless you're Dr. Church or somebody else uh, who has a medical degree and you have, you have the ability and credentials to give medical advice, don't give medical advice. It's not your job. Your job is to help them to deal with what we see clearly in the Bible as problems in human living. Working with issues in the inner man, and as I'll talk about next week, we have real physical diseases. But that doesn't mean they're physical diseases only. That involves issues of spirituality as well. I've said this before in this series. We'll talk about it in more detail next week. If you're diagnosed with cancer, you don't only need a doctor. Yeah, you need a doctor and you should go to him or her. But you also need to deal with the reality that if this is terminal, you're going to be facing Christ and your inner man will be wrestling with that reality. One of the images that you've seen consistently from Ukraine is people praying, singing, gathering together to, to talk about the things of God and to seek God's face because when you're faced with moments like that, you see reality better than you and I mostly do in a given week. You're facing the, the reality of mortality and you begin to wrestle with what matters most. And what I would argue is, is the current sort of process of the whole psychopharmacology world has been somewhat of a blinder to us to see the depth of our fragility before God. And we don't see the need for who we really are and, and just how fragile we are before God. 
and how fragile we are in this world that is really full of trouble and difficulty. And to be honest, we don't like being dependent. We don't like any explanation of weakness that we have to take responsibility for. But we have to pause and understand that that's exactly the way that God describes us, is in deep, desperate, constant need of dependency upon Him. So biblical wisdom, how do we think about this? The symptoms and the experiences that people have are real. No one's denying that. You should never, ever deny that. The depths of the experiences that people feel are real. But human beings are not exclusively physical beings, so not all problems are just explained as medical problems. Proverbs 14.30 says this. This gives you a little bit of insight into this body-soul dynamic that we're going to explore a little bit more next week. Proverbs 14.30 says this. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. So you can see in, in inner man dynamics, what begins to happen is the, the strain, the stress, the difficulty, the turmoil, the soulless vexation, as the Puritans used to call it, it does affect the outer man. Proverbs 17, 22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries the bones. The, the Bible doesn't lack understanding in describing this soul-body dynamic in the way it's interacting together. Let me give you an example. Matthew 6, Jesus calls anxiety sin. But I fear what's happened is we've adopted the scientism of the psychopharmacological world is that we've dismissed anxiety into certain degrees. As if maybe Jesus wasn't fully aware of all the degrees of anxiety and that some belong in a different category. But Jesus describes anxiety as sin in the same way that Paul does in Philippians chapter 4, 6 through 7. Now, one of the things that I want to make very clear, when we talk about Jesus describing anxiety, he relates this to our understanding and relation in living toward God. That's a really important distinction. But what you also have to understand, just because we describe something, um, somebody who's struggling with anxiety, doesn't mean it doesn't have physical presentation. In the same way that Proverbs 14.30 and Proverbs 17.22 describe inner anguish that leads to outer man deficits or outer man impact, bodily impact, I would argue that these types of anxious feelings in the soul absolutely have biological presentation. So I would say something like this. If you call me and you're in some sort of deep panic attack and you're like, pray with me, I'll do that. And then I'm going to ask you some very serious questions. Are you safe? Right? It, are you feeling like something bad is going to happen? Do you feel like physically something's not going well? And you say yes, what's the first thing I'm going to tell you? You need to go to the ER. You need to go to the doctor. You need to go find out, process of elimination. I don't know what's happening right now. It can have physical presentation, certainly. You need to get calmed down, and then you and I can talk. And we can deal with some of the, the, the series or patterns of anxiety that, that have been building in your heart to lead to such a, a physical presentation. So I use that as an, as an example to say that when we talk about anxiety, we're not talking about anxiety that just resides in my heart, and that's the manageable stuff that we can deal with in the Bible. No, no. Anxiety in its depth does have physical presentation as well, but that doesn't mean that it's a biological problem 
only. Does that make sense? And my fear is that we often turn a blind eye to that. When we have to be cautious and careful that we don't categorize something differently even in the way that Jesus did in Matthew 6. And he makes a really good argument in Matthew 6 as to why we shouldn't worry and be anxious about things. He appeals to the sovereignty of God. And if God cares for birds of the air and he cares for lilies of the field, my goodness, will he not care for us? And he's helping us to understand that, that yes, you and I, even as believers, we, we at times forget that. We forget those truths about who God is. And we find ourselves over months and years in patterns where we're trusting in something else or hoping in something else. But we should not offer physical interventions for spiritual problems. We have to be cautious and careful that we're not simply band-aiding or masking. Now, there may be times, and you can talk to your physicians about this, there may be times where this type of medicine is absolutely appropriate as long as you understand what it's doing and what it's not doing. If you understand that this is something that, that is helping you to control symptoms until you can get a better handle on it, I understand that. But we need to be done with the narrative to think that that medicine is fixing you because now your hope shifts to something else rather than where it should be in Christ. Does that make sense? That's one of the most important nuances that we could make about this whole subject that I really hope that you grasp here. But by the same token, we should not minimize legitimate medical treatment and care for troubled people. So, so we don't have to say, right, if people are sick, Jesus wouldn't say, right, well, they probably shouldn't see a physician. Right? Jesus would say that that's okay. Sick people need a physician. Right? He didn't come for people who were well. Right? That's the analogy that he gives. So I think that's important that we make that distinction. Proverbs 15, 13, a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is crushed. Psalm 73, one of the best pictures I think of this when Asaph is describing really in conclusion the reality that he's facing, my heart and my flesh, or my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Really, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, medicine is a good, kind grace of God. But the reality is, guys, and I say this all the time, you can eat kale and quinoa and whatever other superfoods you want, and you can take all the medicine that you want, and they're wonderful, and you should do it. You should desire long life to serve God with all the days that you have in the best health that you possibly can. You are to steward your body well. You should do all of that. But the reality is, and we're going to talk about this more next week, you are going to die, all of us. And anything that takes our minds off of that reality, don't allow medicine to become some facade of ultimate hope. It is great. It is intended to be a foreshadowing of ultimately what Christ will do in full redemption. And it's wonderful. But if you make that the primary aim, and you don't deal with things that the Bible clearly describes as being sinful, we've missed the point. And the Bible is sufficient to help us with the depth of the problems that we all face. And they're real. Can we just admit that? Stop playing as if, you know, I got it all together and everything's good. That, that's false. We all struggle in many ways, and we all need Christ at, at such a depth that we, we don't often realize. And so I want to encourage you. Don't have this picture of, 
hatred toward medicine or any of that kind of stuff. I do truly see legitimate scientific advances as graces from God, as foreshadowings. Because medicine can't do what Christ will do. Medicine can, can help us to overcome legitimate physical illnesses to some degree as a foreshadowing of who we look to Christ. So don't ever let it become the object of your faith or the object of your hope. And that's the point when we think about psychopharmaceuticals, is there's been a philosophical narrative that's been argued that thinks about man differently than the Bible describes man. And for far too long, we in the church have neglected to deal with the depths of our sinful emotions and response and beliefs or the, the, the emotions that are responses to beliefs where we lack dependence upon a holy God. And the call is simply this. Don't let those things fool you of your deep, abiding, necessary dependence upon Christ at all times and in all ways. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful. We pray, Father, that you continue to grant us wisdom. We understand when we talk about a topic like this that we lack it and we need it. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to all be gracious to one another in these, with these issues, that we would also um, seek your wisdom and that we would give freedom where freedom is, is, um, is due, Lord, based on what you reveal in your scriptures. But I pray, God, that our hearts would not be blinded toward the depth of the truth that you give us and that we would run to it for help and for hope, even with the deepest problems that we face. In Christ's name, amen.